Journo at Stories That Matter Studios. I'm Nance Haxton, and this is The Streets of Your Town, The Journo Project. This podcast is all about recognising great Australian journos wherever they may be around the world. With the media in Australia under increasing attack and hard-won freedoms under threat, there's no better time to celebrate and highlight the work of the top journalists from down under. This fearless journo was one of the founding members of the ABC's iconic program, Foreign Correspondent. Since then, she has been shot at in the Middle East and reported from the scenes of devastating mine collapses and attempted rescues in New Zealand and Chile. Dominique Schwartz now calls Brisbane home when she's not travelling from one end of Australia to the other, pitching her swag in some tiny towns as the ABC's National Rural and Regional Current Affairs Correspondent. Her desire to become a journo started as a child and has not waned since she was accepted as one of the few school leavers ever to be awarded a coveted ABC cadetship. She tells me on the Journo Project podcast how she still has the fire in her belly to tell the stories from places less travelled and how concerned she is by recent developments threatening press freedom in Australia. Dominic Schwartz, thank you so much for joining the Journo Project. Happy to be here. Tom, it's wonderful to have you with us. I, I, had, I really don't know where to begin. Looking back over your career, you have been to so many different countries and worked in so many different roles. I suppose my first question that I think of is, was journalism always what you wanted to be doing? From a very early age it was. My, the very first thing I wanted to be was a poet. But my father, who is a very level-headed engineer, asked me whether I liked eating. And I said I did. And he suggested I try something else. So then I thought novelist. And well, um, I started about seven novels before I was, you know, about nine years old and never finished any of them. So tenacity, obviously, in the long form, wasn't my thing. Um, so yes, probably from around about seven I wanted to be a journalist. And how did you make that move from there, from the dream to the reality? Well, I always liked writing and I was always interested in stories and just finding out about people. So I suppose I used to write letters to the local paper. Um, I entered essay competitions and then I did journalism workshops in my holidays. And at one stage I did a, a voluntary role of working for Australia Pension a monthly. So I tried to do as much as I could to build up a bit of a portfolio. And do you think that that is still pretty much the same now for people who are trying to make their break into the industry? Look, I think if you're interested, you do those things. And I think prospective employees... Um, look at those things and go, well, there is definitely an interest here. There's a, a visible interest. So I think whatever you can do. And besides that, it's experience and you learn from all of that. So I still think, you know, just get out there, do whatever you can, whether it's, you know, working in a voluntary capacity with a radio station, whether it's doing stuff online, you know, whatever you can do is only going to help you in the long run. And then you got your cadetship, Dom. Was that, uh, was that after university or how did that happen? No, 
that was um, very, that's actually quite a funny story mm. because all my friends at school knew that I wanted to be a journalist and they used to keep out a, a bit of an eye for me. I was um, saying I'd do anything. I'd, I'd work in any magazine, newspaper, TV, radio, whatever. And one of them came to school one day, one of my friends, and said, oh, so did you see that ad for the cadetship for the ABC? And I went, no, I didn't. <laughs> and she said, oh, yeah, it was in the paper. So I raced home and Mum and I went through the back issues. We found this ad and, of course, entries closed the next day. So there we were. Mum was on the typewriter and we were typing up my, my application and everything. We drove it in and we stuck it under the door <laughs> at the ABC offices in, in Melbourne, in the city. And the job was actually, they asked, they said only university graduates need apply. And I was doing my HSC, so I hadn't even finished high school. So I kind of thought it was a bit ridiculous, but what the heck? And I think they probably <laughs> thought crack. Yeah, they probably <laughs> thought I was ridiculous and got me in for an, for an interview. Well, that must have been one incredible application, Dom. I wish I could read it now. <laughs> oh, I don't know. They they got me in for a voice test and then there was a general knowledge quiz which they did in the the actual studio where I'd done the voice test and I sat in there and I was like I don't know that and that's like asking me what the Queen's bloody corgis names are and everything and I walked out and the whole newsroom erupted in laughter and I just went red as a beetroot because of course they'd all been listening. The mic was on and I was told first lesson if you're ever going to get a job at the ABC never say anything in front of a microphone. Whether it's oh. on or off. And I thought that was it I'm done for. But they did get me back for an interview and, you know, luckily I got the job. From there. And I suppose many people would perhaps think, Dom, that you've only been an ABC reporter, but looking back I was really pleasantly surprised to see you've worked in quite a few different mediums. Can you tell us about your progression from there? Yes, I started off at the ABC. I did a three-year cadetship in radio and television. Then I did one year at Radio Current Affairs, which I have to say was one of the best years for learning and developing journalistic really? craft. Absolutely. It was fantastic. Then from there I went to SBS TV News in Melbourne and after that to Channel 7 on their nightly current affairs programs which at that stage were Day by Day and then Terry Willisey Tonight. And then I resigned in a fit of pique at one stage um, for personal reasons, um, you know, bad love affair or something. Um, isn't that always the way? And took off and went to Japan. And um, there I did something completely different. I was um, a hostess on a ship that never went anywhere, but that's another whole story. Um, nothing untoward. And wound up a few months later in Tokyo working for Night Ridder Financial News as an editor and then on the week weekends I used to produce and present Japan cable TV news. So is that where your love of being a foreign correspondent, of reporting from such a varied range of countries that I see you have lived in, is that where that was born? I think I was always interested in travelling. I mean, from the moment I started earning money, I was saving for, to go travelling. So I think that always interested me. I suppose going to Japan showed me that I could do it. I mean, I was broke. I supported myself. And, you know, I lived in Tokyo, just in sort of little gaijin houses, foreign houses. I ate two-minute noodles. When I finally got a flat of my own, I had no bedding, but that was all right. They had tatami mats. So I suppose it was just... 
I kind of realised that you can do those sorts of things. You can just get out there and do it. And it's fun and it's completely, you know, exciting and difficult at times. But, yeah, Japan was a completely different place. So so I, I did, I loved it, yeah. So that that really built your confidence by the sound of it to, to go on from there. And I saw that you're one of the founding reporters for Foreign Correspondent. Yes. Yeah, so when I left Japan, I came back and I kind of, didn't think that I'd ever work in mainstream journalism again, not because I wasn't interested, but I just kind of thought maybe I'd done my dash. So um, I came back and um, I freelanced. I had a, a radio program on 3RRR and, um, and then I worked for an overseas aid agency, Community Aid Abroad, Oxfam, yeah. for 15 months. And, and then I, as part of that, I went to Mozambique when Renamo was ripping up the country and I made a 12-minute video, educational video for schools in Victoria. And then Foreign Correspondent was advertising as a new program. They were looking for two reporters and I had a friend at the ABC who said, you know, this is the job that you've always wanted. And I said, yeah, me and every other journalist that I can think of and there's no way they're going to take somebody who's, you know, working at an aid agency. Anyway... She said, I'm going to hassle you till you apply, and, and I applied. And, um, yeah, I mean, there must have been so many people who could have got that job. But I suppose I was helped because I just had done this thing in Mozambique and it was the kind of thing that they were looking for. So, yeah, I was very, very fortunate, and that was six and a half years of just, you know, it was unbelievable, just travelling to so many different places. And you're really a roving reporter, weren't you? Not really based in one place at that time? That's that right. right. Mm. So Peter George and myself were based in Sydney and then we had the correspondents everywhere else. Um, and so we tended to go where the correspondents weren't. I really loved going to Africa and Asia. Um, Peter really loved Europe. So that worked out quite well. In fact, it, at one occasion, the executive producer said to me, oh, look, I'm really sorry you've been going to all these places, you know, in Africa, dirty and, you know, very basic and whatever. So we're sending you to Europe and Peter's going to go to Africa. And Peter and I had a coffee and I said, I don't want to go to Europe. He said, I don't want to go to Africa. So we swapped <laughs> and let the EP know. <laughs> Worked out well. It did indeed. <laughs> not, not that I've got anything against Europe, but I do like it for holidays. <laughs> and, and I wonder, is it what you would say to so many of my students or younger people, their aim is to be a foreign correspondent, but they're very daunted about getting there. So is it really about trying, as you did, to, to live overseas on your own steam? Or what are some of the steps that they could take? Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because my career has been very organic. And it's kind of, I suppose, life takes its turns and you just roll with whatever opportunities present themselves. I suppose I always knew that I wanted to go overseas. So any opportunity to do that was fine. And look, you might be lucky enough to be sent overseas. That's great. But for a lot of people, it's about travelling and picking up stories. Maybe it's in your holidays, you pick up stories and then you come back and you file them and, and you build up again. It's that, I can do this, see, I've done this. Um, putting up your hand to go overseas for a few months or something like that. But really, yeah, look, I think if it's not happening for you and you really want to do it, just go because there's so many stories out there and there's so, and and there's so many different platforms on which you can get it now you might not get paid particularly well so you do have to take your savings and live off them but you do have to create your own luck quite a bit of the time as well and how about for you when uh, you were reporting from all these different places how did you get into this the, the culture and report 
how did you find contacts? How did you approach that? Yeah, well, I suppose back in the dark ages when I started, <laughs> uh, wasn't a thing called the internet. Um, so we had clippings libraries and we had newspapers and, you know, we listened to the radio and you might hear something or read something which you thought was interesting and then you'd have a couple of questions about it and then you made phone calls or you sent telexes or faxes. And I remember, you know, quite often when I was researching stories, even for Foreign Correspondent, which started in 1992. And in Africa, I mean, you'd stay all night by a fax machine hoping to get a fax through to somebody who would then sort of, you know, hopefully get back. And I remember I tried someone in Sierra Leone for a week and then finally I got a fax back and they said, that's great, we'll see you when you get here. And that was it. So it was kind of like I've made contact and... When I get there, let's hope they're there. <laughs> Tom, I wonder if it's changed all that much in some of these places, though. The internet is not exactly universal, really, particularly in struggling countries, isn't it? It doesn't really show. It's about building relationships, trusting your gut feeling that, sure, this technology may have changed, but in many ways it's still the same approach. Well, I think technology, actually, although is pretty interesting because mm. even in the places where you think it wouldn't be, it's there. And, in mm. fact, that's kind of... It's often taken up a lot in those areas. Mm. But I do think, look, the, the bottom line is whether technology is a tool. The bottom line is you need to be curious, you need to be able to ask questions, and the simplest of questions and the most obvious questions often lead to surprising answers or surprising lines of inquiry, and you need to listen. I think that's that's actually one of the things we have to really remember in this fast-paced day and age of journalism where there are so many demands on our time and you almost have to know the story before you step out the door. You've got a shooting script and you're going out there and you think, I need this and this and this from this person. So there's a real danger that you can go out and just ask for this and this and this and you might have your story, but you might be missing a far better story if if you if you're sort of more open to it. So yes, you do have to have an idea of what you're going out for, but you don't want to be tunnel vision and you do want to be open to where the story takes you. I had a, I had an example where I was in the Philippines for foreign correspondent and I was doing a story on the Bajau, the sort of sea gypsies in the Sulu Sea, and they just live at sea and then they occasionally pull into stilt houses in the atolls. So you you're in the middle of nowhere and then you see these stilts and and a community there. And that was actually very funny because the day I arrived there, they'd heard that Miss World was in the Philippines. And as I came in, they threw flowers at me and everything. And they thought I was Miss World. Oh, there you go, Tom. <laughs> and the cameraman said, oh, boy, they're desperate. Oh, just to bring you back to earth. Yeah, exactly. Cameras tend to do that. They do. They do indeed. <laughs> uh, he did have a point. <laughs> but anyway, with these particular people, now the translator that we had was a school teacher who knew English in Bajau. I mean, that's what you get out there and I kept saying to him look I just want I had a feeling he was he wasn't translating exactly what they were saying and I kept saying to him don't tell me what you think I want to hear tell me exactly what they're saying so anyway he did and we came back with this story and I managed to find a Bajal speaker to basically look over and when you got back when, I, yep. when we got back complete opposite. So the story I <gasps> came back with was the opposite. And it was like, oh, my goodness. And everyone said, what are you going to do? And I said, well, tell the story that's here. You know, what can I do? So, um, so yeah, it, it is... 
you know, you do have to be careful. And again, trusting your gut feeling, I think, Dom, because you've, you've worked with fixers a lot, mm. as I imagine, and that that is an important relationship to to have, isn't it? And the trust that you, you get. Can you tell us a bit about the fixer for people who aren't familiar with that term? Yes, the fixer. A good fixer will get you the best stories and you can owe your life to a good fixer, particularly in dangerous places. Mm. A fixer is, as the name would suggest, somebody who fixes things. So they, they're often um, a very good journo, they might or they might not be a journo, but they're a local. They can put you in contact with people. Quite often they need to be able to translate as well and they can line things up. They've got local knowledge, importantly, so they know if a place is safe or if it's not safe or what the cultural considerations might be about things. So, yes, a, a good fixer is worth their weight in gold and a bad fixer, yes, can be very dangerous. <laughs> You've got to go and get the whole thing translated again. <laughs> That's right. Um, it makes me think of another story that I noticed in your incredible resume, Dom, but about in Africa that you won a New York Festival's award for, UNESCO award, and made me think you were really a bit ahead of your time there, Dom, about genital mutilation. That must have been incredibly difficult to do at that point when there wasn't much discussion about that, and particularly in a culture that where that would not be... Okay, to talk about. Yeah, it was interesting. Lisa McGregor, who um, works with the ABC from time to time, producer um, with Four Corners, and she's done Australian Story and whatever, very good journalist in her own right. She was working as foreign correspondent at the time, uh, at the same time as me, and we wanted to do a story on female genital mutilation. But we were very keen to do something that wasn't a horrifying story. We wanted to see, was there, pos was there a positive way to tell this story and to try and affect change? So it took us a long time. It took us about six months. But we, we got a story up in Burkina Faso in uh, West Africa. And that country at that time was leading the way in trying to educate its population against female genital mutilation. And so what we did is we got we we found these two midwives who travel the country on their little motorbikes with a big screen up the back and they go and they hold meetings with um, villagers from far and wide. Some people walk days to get to these meetings and they showed this film about what could happen. It was a, like a drama about what could happen if the girl got infected and whatever and then have these huge discussions. And it was, it was quite remarkable and these characters were amazing. We found a family that was prepared to talk with us, their daughter was um, about to undergo female genital mutilation and they thought that this was a good thing and and for and it's understandable because what it means is that 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 girl will be accepted by society mm. so in fact although it's part of a patriarchal system the enforcers of this are often the the women the mothers because they don't want to see their daughter ostracized shows it involves a huge societal change on so many levels absolutely mm. and so we spoke with this pe these people beforehand um, and then after they'd sort of had these discussions seen the film and then they said that they weren't going to go ahead with it. Now, I've often thought I want to go back and I want to find mm. out whether that actually was the case. Oh, or... I wonder if you could, Dom. That would be a great Yeah, story. yeah. I 
really like to do that. It's on, it's on the list of you're follow-ups. Al- you're always thinking of new stories, aren't you, Dom? And, uh, and it makes me think, too, you said it took six months to do that. One thing I find I'm constantly pointing out, too, is that's on top of your other daily demands, isn't it? It's not like you're, here, take this office and just work on this story for six months. Well, look, uh, you know, back in the day we had, um, we had researchers and producers at Foreign Correspondent oh. as well. So while I might have been off doing something, Lisa was back there beavering away as well. So, um, so yeah. Give them the credit for that. Yeah. Very Absolutely. <laughs> and of course, then you went to, this may not be in the right order, but of course, I remember you mainly in New Zealand, mm-hmm. uh, the correspondent there. And I wondered when you went there, if you thought, gee, this should be a really quiet kind of posting. This will be a bit, you know, maybe of a slowdown. It'll be really interesting, great culture. But then perhaps found that that didn't turn out as planned. Yeah, well, it was funny because um, after Foreign Correspondent, I went to the Middle East for three years. And then I came back and, and I was reading news in Adelaide for a while. My reading and breeding years, I call them. And then, <laughs> <laughs> and then as soon as the kids were old enough, it was time to, you know, really get back get out on the road again. again. That's yeah. right. So, so anyway, the New Zealand job came up and I thought, well, look, this is good. We've got a young family and hopefully it won't be too demanding. It'll be interesting, great country, you know, no war zone, fantastic. And I remember Peter Cave at the time said to me, what are you doing, retiring? <laughs> so it wasn't just your view. No, that's right. Mm. And I and I laughed and I joked with him that knowing my luck, I'll get there and there'll be a big earthquake, which, you know, oh hate to say, yeah, exactly was what happened. So that was Christchurch? That was, was Christchurch, oh, that's right. So, that um, was a pretty difficult one to be thrown into. Yeah, yeah. So it was the Christchurch earthquake. And then I actually went to Chile for the miners' rescue, which was that amazing. Was a huge story at the Huge time. story. Mm. But then, of course, came back and there was the Pike River mine disaster. Mm. And I think because there'd just been this great news story about the rescue in Chile, everyone thought it would be. But that, I have to say, was one of the hardest stories I've ever mm. had to cover. It was it was very, very difficult. And also because it was a closed little community, they didn't really want the media there. There was a lot of early problems and, yeah, but but I kept going back. And, in fact, I still talk with people there now and uh, and everything, but that was very tough. And, and then there was the next Christchurch earthquakes, which were devastating in the February the next year and then there were you know oil tankers running aground and yeah there was wasn't much time for resting up (laughs) (laughs) and and how do you deal with these really difficult stories like the one that you that you mentioned how do you go into these communities that are really hurting really mourning and establish that trust with you as a journalist uh, the Pike River Mine disaster story was incredibly confronting for me because my journalism and ethics were called into question on that story. I and mean, I was in tears one night because I'd, I'd been, you know, there were a couple of Australians that were in the mine. One of the Australian families was living there and I'd made contact via phone and I'd spoken with a friend who was at the house and she said, look, just ring back a bit later, you know. So I did and one of the boys answered the phone, one of the young boys of the family. And I said, look, I'm, I said, I'm, I'm really sorry for what's happened. You know, is your mother there or whatever? Oh, no, she's not and whatever. Well, then I was out at dinner that night having done live crosses and all the rest of it. And I got that basically the, the chaplain had come around and to talk with me and wanted me to go down to the police station because I'd been harassing one of the families and she'd reported me. And 
understandably, all she heard was that her son said, oh, you know, a reporter rang. Now, of course, the last thing I was going to do was engage with this boy. Mm. But it was, um, yeah, it was was very, very tough. I mean, that's tough for me as a reporter. I mean, it's nothing mm. compared to what they were going through. But then trying to work out a way that you can report without intruding on people's grief is, mm. is very difficult. And to be truthful in that reporting. And Hugh Remington spoke a bit about that, about how you can't give perhaps the complete picture because people will recoil from it. It's really difficult, but you've also got to be truthful. It's a really difficult balance. Yeah, it is. And I think, you know... Then I was, you know, I was gun shy in approaching oh, yeah. people, but you still have to do it. Mm. But I suppose I'm, I'm always try to do it in the best possible way. And and other people responded well. And and in fact, the funny thing was, I, I went to the pub and um, I was there with another journo, and we were sitting there, and there was a group of of men, and it turns out that they were actually friends of the miners, and in the end, they were comforting us. <laughs> so oh. so it's it that would have meant a lot. Yeah. yeah. It was an it was an it was an interesting experience. And I remember you in the Middle East. I'm, I think pretty clearly on top of a roof somewhere, being <laughs> dodging bullets. I mean that that's another experience as well. Yeah, that was um, that was the start of the Second Intifada, and that was in Ramallah, and that was when Israeli helicopters for the first time gunships um, actually fired on Ramallah, and it was a, a very surreal day. I mean, we saw them and we thought surely they're not going to fire, and then down into the police station it went, and but of course that had all been building up there'd been um, reservists who'd been lynched in Ramallah and so yeah it was a it was a powder keg and yeah very crazy day. You seem to end up in these places that uh, that's pretty hard to walk that fine line as a, as a journalist it must be feel like a bit of a I don't know how would you describe it a bit of a dance sometimes to make sure that you're keeping everyone and giving them a it's more than two sides to a story in these situations. They're the it? best they're the best stories and I suppose that's why journalists <laughs> Journalists are attracted to those situations. There are plenty of people I've met who are, I suppose you could say, war junkies. I've been in lots of Mm -hmm. war zones, but I'm not a war junkie. Mm -hmm. But conflict does provide the the best and the worst and the extremes of emotion and often you know very complex stories and you just how does this work you know is there any way you can solve this what what's going on here what really is the story and it doesn't matter whether that's in the Middle East or whether it's here in Australia and you're dealing with an environmental issue an indigenous issue you know a rural issue it doesn't matter there's there's always two sides and you really do have to be open to that and I think you know there's a lot made of investigative journalism and investigative journalism is very important but it doesn't always have to involve criminals and it doesn't have to be somebody's doing something really bad or whatever it's about investigating a situation or a story trying to put shed new light on areas which are maybe overlooked and trying to put a context around things and um, so you know yes exposing but also exploring issues and explaining them in a way that gives context and resonates with people. I think that's... Journalists should never overlook the fact... Like, a lot of journalists are lauded because, you know, they do big stories and whatever, and that's great. But 
every day-to-day journo who just keeps things ticking over, I mean, they're doing a vital job as well, you know. And need to be appreciated. And need to be appreciated. And all, all the all applause, applause to you, the journos out there doing that as we're speaking yes, right now. that's right. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, which brings me, I think, to the media raids, which we've been speaking about of late, I suppose, and, and the impact that that might have on investigations. What was, what was your reaction when you heard about the Australian Federal Police going to News Limited journalist houses, going to the ABC to, to get all that information. Yeah, I was pretty stunned. I mean, and particularly with both of them happening around the same time and soon after the election, um, you know, I don't know, we're a cynical bunch, I suppose, but the questions immediately start forming, don't they? And and I think, you know, in terms of the Australian Journal, you know, having them in your home going through everything, I mean, that's... The undies drawer, apparently. That's very confronting. Mm. But even, you know, the case of the, the ABC as well, when they already had an identified whistleblower and then yet still here we had the police in searching through things I, th- I look I don't know I think the the biggest danger is that journalists will self-censor and that journalists won't want to tackle things not and even it might not lead to a prosecution but the time it takes to fight things is horrendous I mean Chris Masters I think he spent half his life sort of in in legal mode mm-hmm. um, the death of a thousand cuts he called it yeah all, ex- that, all those legal cases from the moonlight state that's yeah. right exhausting mm-hmm. and it means you can't be working on other things as well it, it's it's mm-hmm. it's a drain but it is very very important that we fight for whistleblower protection and also for protection uh, for the press I mean in the US and the UK that's enshrined it's not in Australia and it's all right to say, oh yeah, we appreciate it. Well, okay, you appreciate it. Let's not let's enshrine it in law. And the the right to know coalition is um, has actually now you know they're pushing for that. They're they're looking for an inquiry, a full inquiry, and they want these sort of protections. And I think really it can't come fast enough. How do we maybe communicate that better with the wider public who perhaps are a bit cynical about Jonos? Mm. I don't know. I thought it was quite interesting when uh, John Lyons was talking, and, you know, during the ABC raids, and he was saying it's it's not about journalism; it's about democracy, and and that is what it's about. It's not about journalists saving their own skin. Sure, we don't want the hassle, and we want to be able to protect our jobs, of course, but but why are we journalists? We're journalists because we want to make sure that our democracy works well. We want to make sure that the unjust, that those who are treated unjustly have a voice. We want to make sure that those who are in positions of power are conducting themselves in a way that befits their position. We, we want all of those things and we want people to be able to debate things. I think the biggest problem we have, one of the biggest problems we have in Australia at the moment is that it's very hard to have a m- mature debate about things. One side tries to shut down the other. Everyone, it's gone to the extremes and look it's all right to have a view which is reasonably extreme if you listen to the other view I mean we we have to be able to talk freely if we're going to try and actually solve problems and we've got a lot of problems on our plate let's face it so that's the message it's it's not about journalism it's about democracy and it's about you Australian 
living in a place where you can say what you want, where you know that the, the machinery of government is working well, that corporations are being responsible, that unions are being responsible and not corrupt, all of those sorts of things. And that healthy journalism is a part of that, of upholding that. Oh, it's a hugely important mm. part of it, indeed. Because if, if journalists aren't asking the questions, who are? I remember Mark Colvin telling me that once, to not be afraid of asking the difficult questions, or as you said before, even the obvious questions. The very, uh, th Those are the ones that sometimes we think, oh, I can't ask that, that makes me sound silly. Yes, it's interesting. One of my first chief of staffs said to me, if you don't understand something, ask why. It's better to ask why in front of a pack of other journalists than to not ask it and then make an idiot of yourself when your story goes out and nobody else can make sense of it. <laughs> So just to wrap up, Dom, it brings me to where you are now. Here we are at ABC in Brisbane. You're based as National Rural and Regional Correspondent. Yes. Basically just a chick who goes out in the bush, yeah. <laughs> so you're still wandering, you're still going out, and do you apply some of those same principles from your foreign reporting days? Is it similar when you're going out to these little communities in Australia? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's it's like being a correspondent in your own backyard, really. And I, I think, look, it, it doesn't matter what you do. You can be working on local news you can be doing anything. I think the, the principles are always the same. What's the story? What are the different angles on it? Why does it matter? What do people need to know about this? And how can I tell it in a way that makes sense of it, that's engaging and will mean something to people out there, whether they're reading, listening, watching or whatever? And, of course, we're, as a journalist, you're in the most privileged position. You've got a passport that takes you into the lives of people. You've got a passport to ask, to tap into the knowledge of so many people. I mean, can you imagine any other job that, that allows you that kind of um, access? And with that comes a responsibility. And I think more than ever we have to be really careful that, that we approach journalism with you know, strong ethics because it's, it's very easy to self-censor. It's very easy. We come up against um, you know, increasingly bosses have to think of so many other factors in terms of politics and money and all the rest of it. We just have to try and stay true to, to what we're trying to do. Oh, it's wonderful seeing the excitement in your face, Dom, that you're still loving telling the stories and finding those stories and digging into them. I can see that as we're talking. Well, look, if you're not interested and excited, you may as well get out. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note, um, thank you so much, Dom, for, for joining us on uh, the streets of your town, the Journo Project. Is there anything you'd like to add to, to wrap up this episode? Thank you so much for telling us about your amazing career. Oh, not at all. Just thank you, and um, you know, I was surprised you that you asked me to do it. But look, I'm I'm more than happy to be here, and it's um it's a great honour. So thanks, Nance, and and to all those budding journalists out there, go for it. <laughs> it's a great job. It's a great job. Wonderful. Thank you. That was Dominique Schwartz, ABC's National Rural and Regional Current Affairs Correspondent, speaking to me for the Journo Project podcast. Streets of Your Town is produced by Nance Haxton, aka The Wandering Journo, with production assistance from Michael Adams. That's it for this episode. I'm Nance Haxton. Stay up to date with the latest episode of Streets of Your Town by subscribing on your podcast app on iTunes or SoundCloud. See you next time.